And uh, for a few weeks ahead of time, uh, eventually I promise we'll get out of the book of Acts. Uh, But we're going to stick there for now, uh, this morning. And so uh, open in your Bibles with me to chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. Um, If you don't happen to have your Bible, the text should be um, on the screen uh, with me. And uh, so you can look up there or choose to follow along in your own Bible. Uh, We have been in a a series called Growth God's Way, and this morning I believe is part five of of that series entitled Growth God's Way. And uh, by way of review, essentially what we've been doing is taking a look at the New Testament, starting in the book of Acts, and asking this question, uh, what are some of the marks Or what are some of the characteristics of a healthy, uh, growing church? A church that is growing numerically, a a church that is healthy, has healthy relationships, a church that pursues uh, God's will. Um, What does it look like for us to be a healthy, mature church? And in part five this morning, we're going to find out that uh, a healthy, mature uh, church that experiences growth uh, God's way is a church that is characterized by boldness. A church that is characterized by boldness in their witness and as they face uh, difficulty and as they face opposition in their Christian life. And so part five, uh, chapter four of the book of Acts is boldness. Uh, So let's do this uh, now that you're ready to go with me. uh, Let's pray one more time and ask God's blessing on our word and we'll dive in. Father, thanks again that we can meet here this morning. Thanks that we can sing songs of praise to you. Uh, Thank you that we can focus upon who you are. Um, You're a great God, and you're an awesome God. Uh, You are a covenant-keeping God, and you keep your promises. Uh, They are uh, fully uh, reliable. And we're so grateful that you have not only given us promises, but you have given us your word. Um, You're not a God who is distant, and you're not a God who creates and then lets its creation go, but you are intimately involved in all of your creation, and you're involved in our life, and you have cared enough to reveal yourself to us through your scripture. Uh, You have spoken in a time and into space uh, through prophets and uh, priests and your apostles, and chiefly, you have spoken to us through your son, Jesus Christ. He is the revelation of who you are, the very uh, image of God, so that when we look at your son, when we look at his life, when we look at his teachings, when we look at what he did, we see you, Father. And we're so grateful that we have a clear picture of who you are. Father, we ask this morning that your presence would be with us. Spirit, would you come and help me to speak boldly as I speak about boldness? Uh, Spirit, would you come and fill my lips with things that are true and accurate? Uh, Guard me against saying that which is merely man's opinion. Uh, Father, we want to hear your word. We want to hear what you would have to say to us. And so as we break it open and as I expound it, help me to do that well. And help those who are listening to my voice um, to listen uh, to your voice in me. Father, that they would have soft hearts. Father, that they would be willing to be uh, poked and prodded and uplifted and built up. Whatever it is that you would have for them this morning, that they would be uh, attentive. Uh, that you would help us to set aside uh, the frustrations of the morning, the expectation of the afternoon or the week ahead. And that right now you would help us uh, just to hear your word and be changed by it, to be equipped by it. For that's our desire and that's what we value here. We want you to equip us to be moms and husbands and school teachers and children and students and whatever it is that we are. We want to be that better because you've equipped us through your word. And so we ask for your help and grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. So uh, a few months ago, uh, Shelly and I 
uh, as you may know or may not know, we subscribe to Netflix. And uh, I really enjoy the idea of Netflix because you can pick out movies uh, on your computer and request that they send it to you. And in a matter of days, they send you the movies that you request. Um, it's much easier, in particular where we live, than going to the nearest Blockbuster. Um, I don't even know where the nearest Blockbuster is. Um, that's where we used to go in Dallas, and it was a block away. I figure it's probably a few more blocks away now. <laughs> and so we do Netflix, and it's really enjoyable. Um, we do maybe one or two a month, and if we're lucky, we actually watch them. Uh, uh, but a few months ago, we decided to get um, the new Star Trek movie, and I, I believe it was just entitled Star Trek. Now, uh, this is going to be a show of honesty. How many of you enjoy either the old TV show Star Trek or some of the new movies? Star Trek people, Trekkies. Okay, thanks for standing firm and uh, you know being willing to put yourself out there um, with Star Trek. Um, so here's the deal with that. Shelley grew up watching, I think, the old TV shows, and her sister enjoyed Star Trek. And so, uh, or is it Trek? I call it Trek. Trek? Okay, you can tell I'm not a Trekkie because I mispronounced it. Um, she grew up uh, watching Star Trek. And uh, I never once saw a TV show of Star Trek. I never once saw any of the movies. And so when the new one came out, she wanted to get it. And uh, I'm kind of a Star Wars kind of a guy. You know, me and Yoda, we're tight. And so I like Star Wars. She likes Star Wars too, which is why she's a great godly woman. But uh, she likes Star Trek. And so she convinced me to watch this, to, to get the Star Trek movie. Um, how many of you saw the most recent Star Trek, by the way? Trek, Star Trek. Okay, a few of you. Um, and so I'll have to admit, um, we got it, and I was a bit pessimistic. You know, I just, you know, it's just not Star Wars, you know. Um, but uh, I have to admit that the most recent one, which is, I think was 09, it was, it was pretty good. Like, I actually really enjoyed it. And it was somewhat of a, uh, what I would call a prequel, right? And so it was a prequel movie. And so what they did is they went back before um, the USS Enterprise was the USS Enterprise and the current crew as we knew it. It was a prequel to kind of show how they came together, how they formed their, formed their relationships, and how they actually became the crew of uh, the USS Enterprise. And so all that to say, two thumbs up from Trey. Even if you're not a Trekkie, you should, you should watch it. It's a pretty good movie. And so going into it, like I said, I didn't know anything about Star Trek other than Spock had pointy ears and the sign was that, right? That's, that's about all I knew about Star Trek, except there was one thing that I was familiar with from the very beginning, and that was the introductory monologue. That was the, you know, when it first comes on, there's this saying, there's this monologue, and I knew it. And so I'm going to play the original monologue for you. It's the original TV series monologue. We're going to get it up here, and uh, then I'll, I'll comment on it. Space, a final frontier. are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. 
All right, you can tell that was the original one for a couple reasons. Kind of the hokey music, you know, and uh, and then like the spit, the ship was like made out of clay or something, you know. Uh, so it was the original, original. But you know, when we when we started the movie, it started with that, and I actually knew it. That was the one part uh, for some reason that I actually knew, um, and so. To, to boldly go. In fact, as, as it was playing, I heard some of you lipping, you know, like mouthing it, you know? I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, I, knew, I knew that. And the last part really is the part that I'd like for us to focus on. It says, to boldly go, what? Where no man has gone before, right? Um, you know, and I thought about that. To boldly go where no man has gone before. This morning, we're going to be talking about boldness. We're going to be talking about boldness. And, uh, you know, not only does this describe uh, the USS Enterprise and its original crew, that they boldly went where no man has gone before, but I would say that it accurately describes the early church. I think that it actu- accurately describes the boldness and the endeavor of the early church. Because think about it, they were going where no man had gone before in the sense that they were boldly proclaiming that someone had actually died and been in the grave, buried for three days, and then been resurrected from the dead, had been given life from the dead. And I would venture to say that no man had ever claimed to do that or had done that before. They were boldly going where no man preaching and teaching what no one had ever preached or taught or gone before. This morning, we're going to see the fifth attribute of growing churches, and that is they are bold. Uh, Dr. Thomas Constable in commenting on this section in the book of Acts, chapters 3, 4, and 5, which is the section that we're going to be in this morning, um, is a transitional section. And, and he hits it right on the mark when he says this. Luke records the events of this section to document, notice this, to document the continued expansion of the church and to identify the means God used to produce growth. And so what he's saying is that as we look at chapters 3, 4, and 5, there are going to be some things going on that are going to show us the means that God used to produce growth in the church. And that's exactly what we're looking at this morning. What does God use to grow his church? And what we're going to find out in chapters 3 and 4 is that one of the things, one of the characteristics, one of the means that God uses to grow his church is boldness, in particular, in facing opposition. Boldness in the face of opposition. And so this morning, uh, we're going to kind of specifically look at chapter 4, but I want to catch you up because we're going to pick up kind of right in the middle of the story. And so if you were to read John, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 3, what you would find out is uh, a story of a healing uh, by the apostles. And so essentially what happened is that Peter and John were going to prayer uh, one day and they're going by the temple and they pass by this lame beggar and uh, the guy says, hey, can you give me some money? This is Trey's paraphrase. And they essentially say, uh, money we don't have, but what we can give you, uh, this, is what, this is what we can give you. And they say, get up and walk. And they heal this guy just like that. He takes his hand and boom, kind of pulls him up and his legs, man, they can, he can walk. And so as you can imagine, this is kind of in the temple courtroom, that created quite a stir. There was quite a buzz going on. There's this miracle, there's this guy that everybody knows used to sit by the gate and say, give me some money. 
and he was lame, and now he's walking, and he's praising God, and the text indicates that he's jumping and leaping and praising God, and Peter, and, and the, the impression you get is like, Peter and John are like, okay, we're going to keep going into prayer, and he follows them, and he's making all this racket, and so there's a crowd that gathers, and Peter, uh, you know, in his mind says, this is, a, this is a preaching opportunity. There's a crowd around me. And so he begins to preach to them. And in Acts chapter 3, you get a sermon very similar to the sermon we looked at last week. Uh, Peter uh, talks about repentance and faith in Jesus, and he calls the crowds to, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so there's a gospel presentation going on. And we pick up the story in chapter 4, because in chapter 4, um, essentially all of that commotion and all of that racket um, draws the attention of the temple authorities. And so that's where we're going to pick up this morning. Essentially, by way of structure, um, here's what we're going to go for this morning. We've got four, kind of four sections. And so if you're taking notes, um, hopefully this will be clear. Four sections, and each section will have an application point. And so the first section I've called the restraining of the apostles. The restraining of the apostles, uh, verses 1 through 4. And we're going to see that uh, they're preaching, uh, at least in part, is going to be restrained. And so let's read uh, these four verses together. Uh, Verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, that is Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching and uh, teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, And they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. And so in verses 1 through 4, we see the apostles being restrained. Uh, Essentially, you get the idea that Peter is preaching, and, and they're sharing the gospel, and they're teaching to this crowd, and it's creating such a stir that these three groups of people, Luke indicates, kind of come upon them. And the language, if we can skip back to, to verse 1, the language is, is kind of soft. It's, it's the idea that uh, it says that they, they uh, came upon them. It's really the idea that they rushed upon them violently to subdue them. It's, it's kind of an intimidating kind of a word. And so they're preaching, and these three groups of people come upon them to stop them. Notice the three groups of people that Luke identifies. Uh, First of all, it's the priests, that is those who are serving and the sacrifices and the care of the temple. And so they were there um, doing their jobs, if you will. Uh, They noticed what was going on. It says the captain. Uh, Essentially, the captain was kind of like... He was kind of like the chief of police, if you will. It was his primary job to kind of maintain order in the temple area. And so quite a crowd was was being uh, made. And there was, you know, uh, it was a crowd. It was kind of a riot kind of situation. And so he was concerned. And so he came upon them to settle things down. And then the third group that's mentioned is the Sadducees. Um, There's a lot that could be said about the Sadducees. But a couple important things that I want to share with you. Uh, Number one, uh, the Sadducees were kind of the upper ups. They were um, kind of in uh, in charge, if you will, of Israel's religious system. Uh, they did not believe in a resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees, which Paul was, and we see them in the Gospels, they did believe in a resurrection from the dead, but the Sadducees didn't, and they uh, kind of ruled the temple. Most of the priests were of the Sadducean uh, flavor, and so they didn't believe in resurrection. And secondly, they kind of had 
what I would call a close tie to the Roman government. Uh, they didn't want to upset the Roman government. They benefited themselves from the tie to the Roman rule. And so they didn't want anyone challenging the authority of the Roman government. They didn't want chaos. And so all of these things come together to show us that each of these three people had a part and had you know, a, a good reason to put to stop what was going on here. Um, notice a couple things also. What is it that they were upset about? A couple things that they didn't, they didn't like. Uh, first of all, they didn't like that they were teaching the people. Do you notice that? Uh, it says that they were greatly annoyed in verse 2 because they were teaching the people. Whose role was that? That was their role. It was their job to teach the people, the priests and uh, the, the Sadducees. It was their job to kind of convey official doctrine and truth. And somebody else was kind of taking that mantle. And so they didn't like that. And secondly, they didn't like the fact that they were, according to verse 2, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They didn't like that. And so they quickly kind of put a halt to that. Uh, something I want to point out, notice in verse 4, basically they, they arrest them, they throw them in jail. It's too late in the evening for you know, an official trial, if you will. And so they're going to wait until the morning to put these guys on trial officially. By the way, there are a lot of parallels here with the disciples' experience and Jesus' experience at his death. And so they wait, but notice the result. This is uh, kind of lead us to our first principle. Notice the result in verse 4. It says, Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men who came about to 5,000. And so the point that I want us to see is that while there was opposition to the gospel, while there were people who didn't want the gospel to go forth, there were people who opposed Jesus and they tried to put uh, Jesus' followers in chains, they couldn't change the gospel. They couldn't chain God's word. And so while the apostles could be physically restrained, the gospel could not be restrained. It went forth. People believed. People who heard and saw the miracle. And it says that uh, upwards of 5,000 men, and that's just men. Earlier, just a few days or weeks earlier, there were only, uh, what, 3,000 believers in all? Now there are 5,000 men not including women, not including children. And so the, the early church is just booming. People are coming to faith. And so the first principle that I want to draw from this relating to boldness is this. Jot this down. We should be bold. We should be bold because the gospel can be effective in spite of opposition. We should be bold because the gospel can be effective despite human opposition. This should be of great encouragement to us because I don't know about you, but in your relationships, in your family, with the people at work, with your kids, with a father, um, if, if you have ever tried to share the gospel with someone, if you've ever tried to talk about spiritual things with someone, if you've ever tried to mention the name of Jesus to someone, the odds are that you've experienced some kind of opposition, some kind of rejection, some kind of hesitation, some kind of opposition to the gospel like these guys have. And so what I want this to be is an encouragement to us. We shouldn't let opposition stop us. We shouldn't let your father or mother whom you desperately pray for and you try to talk with them about Jesus whenever you have a chance and they just are hard-hearted towards you. They don't want to listen. Uh, they change the subject on you. They talk about the weather. Don't let that opposition stop you from being bold 
in the gospel. Uh, maybe it's a coworker that you have, or maybe a very good friend that you care deeply about, and you know what I'm talking about. You try to prod here and there. You pick your moments. You try to talk about spiritual matters. You want to lead them to an understanding and faith in the gospel, but it has not been received. You have faced opposition just like they have. Be encouraged, because the gospel can be effective even in spite of human opposition. So we've seen the restraining of the apostles in 1 through 4. Next, in verses 5 through 12, kind of second chunk here, I would call the reasoning of the apostles. We've seen them restrained by the authorities. Uh, In the next section, we're going to see the reasoning or the explanation of the apostles. They are going to be put on defense, if you will. Their time uh, in court is going to arrive the next morning, and they are going to reason their way through the gospel. And so let's read together verses 5 through 12. Verse 5, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when when they had set them in the midst, they inquired. So they're going to question them. By what power and or by what name did you do this? Referring to the miracle. Then Peter, notice the word, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we, are be exa- if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this has been healed, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so what we see in verses 5 through 12 is the reasoning, the defense, if you will, of the apostles. Um, A couple things I want to point out. First of all, What's going on here is they are putting, uh, they are being set before what is called the Sanhedrin. Uh, you may have heard that term or not, but the Sanhedrin was kind of like the supreme court in Israel. They were kind of the highest ruling body. They were composed of 70 people plus the high priest, so 71 of them. And they would essentially make judgments for the nation. And so this is, this is no small deal. I mean, this is like... Um, the Supreme Court of the United States calling me to go to Washington to stand before them so that they can question the legality of what I'm doing. (laughs) It's a huge deal. Uh, It's the biggest stage in Israel, if you will. Um, The term that you'll see in verse 5, rulers and elders and scribes, this often is uh, is a catchphrase. It's, It's a word describing this group called the Sanhedrin. And so to, to, to share kind of the the feel, uh, a commentator by the name of, of Barclay, I think he sets the scene well. Read what he says as he describes what's going on here. He says, When we read the speech of Peter, we must remember to whom it was spoken. And when we do remember that, it becomes one of the world's greatest demonstrations of courage. Boldness, I would add. It was spoken to an audience of the wealthiest, the most intellectual, and the most powerful in the land. And yet Peter, the the Galilean fisherman, 
stands before them rather as their judge than as their victim. But further, this was the very court which had condemned Jesus to death. Peter knew it, and he knew that at this moment he was taking his life into his hands. And that is what exactly happened in this scenario. Let me point out a couple things to Peter's response that pertain to boldness. The first thing that we see is in verse 8. So if we can flip back to verse 8. In verse 8, what we find out is that Peter's response, his rising up to uh, reason with them, was supernatural. Notice this little phrase in verse 8. Then Peter, what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the image that we get is that in that moment, the Holy Spirit in a, in a special way moved in Peter's life to give him the boldness and the clarity to speak the gospel. Um, this should be distinguished from what happened earlier. If you remember earlier in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon all of those who were believers, all of the followers. They were filled and they were, we could say, they were indwelt. They were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That was a permanent thing. But here, that, it's not a second baptism of the Spirit. What's happening here is a special uh, enablement, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. Peter needed courage. He needed to speak boldly. And the Spirit in that moment, as Peter stepped out in obedience, filled him to speak boldly. I don't know if you've ever had this kind of experience before. I hope that you have, because it means that you, like Peter, have stepped out in faith to share the gospel in an uncomfortable circumstance. And let's be honest, for most of us, sharing the gospel, speaking of Jesus, or things of Christianity with anyone is an uncomfortable experience for most of us. It is for me as well. But you, I hope that you've had this experience, I have before, um, where you're, you're talking with someone, uh, maybe it's a, it's a home visit, maybe I'm sitting with someone, maybe it's a conversation at the coffee shop, maybe it's in a counseling situation, or maybe it's just with your family at home. Whatever it may, it may be, that you go into it and you know that you would really like to speak about Christ. You have it set on your mind and you've been praying for that person. You don't think that they're believers. And you go and you are scared to death, most likely, if you're like me, but you're praying and you're waiting. And when the conversation turns, when the moment arrives, if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. The Spirit prompts you. You know that it's time to speak. You know that that is the opportunity. That is the in in that conversation. And you know that you can take it or you can leave it. And the Spirit rises up in you and gives you boldness and you speak about Jesus. That's, I think, what happened with Peter. Secondly, I want us to notice that Peter's boldness meant that he was straightforward. I love Peter's response in verses 10 through 12. I mean, he uh, is just so straightforward in his boldness. Notice what he says. They question him, and essentially they say, um, by what name and by what authority are you doing this? They don't even want to say the name of Jesus. They're just saying, hey, who gives you the right to do this? And they're giving him an out. That's what they're doing. They're giving him an out. If he wants to back away from preaching Jesus, if he wants to get out of what he had been saying, that was the opportunity. <laughs> and notice what, he's, notice what he says. Basically he says, hey, if we're being examined today for do, being a good deed, and you want to know by what authority we're doing this, let me tell you, verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people that by the name of Jesus, whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead. This is the name by which we are doing this. He is completely straightforward. They say, whose authority? 
why are you doing this? And he says, Jesus. <laughs> He's just so straightforward. He doesn't mince words. And so the second principle I want us to learn this morning is that not only should we be bold because the gospel can overcome human opposition, boldness means being straightforward. That's our second application for this morning. Boldness simply means we are straightforward in our answers. He doesn't mince words. He's not ambiguous. He doesn't just say, well, this is my opinion. This is what I think. This is my worldview. He's not ambiguous. He just answers the question. He doesn't avoid the question. He doesn't answer uh, a question that's not being asked. I don't know. It's, it's more common during like election seasons, uh, but I hate it when politicians on both sides of the aisle, when they're in an interview and I'm listening to them and the, and the questioner or the commentator gives them a question and it's a particularly difficult question. You know what drives me bananas? is when they don't answer the question. It drives me nuts when they don't answer the question or they answer a question that's not being asked. It drives me nuts. Peter doesn't do that. But you know what? Sometimes me and you, when we're having conversations with people and it, it gets difficult, when there's an out, when the person we're talking about has a hard question, when they say things like, does that mean that no, just Christians can go to heaven? Does that mean that Jesus really is the only way? You really believe that there is such a thing called sin and that we offend this God? You really think that eternal uh, justice and punishment forever, you think that's a real thing? And there are questions that come at us, and in that moment, I've done it and you've probably done it as well. We aren't straightforward. We aren't bold. We say, this is my opinion. Well, that's just what I believe. This is what I've been taught. That's what my church says. And we waffle, and we are not straightforward. And so I want to encourage you, the next time you're having conversations just be straightforward. <laughs> Answer the questions, be truthful and honest, and let the gospel go forth. Number three, we've seen the restraining of the apostles, we've seen their reasoning. Uh, verses 13 through 22, we see what I would call the restriction of the apostles. What we're going to see is that the Sanhedrin is going to kind of leave, they're going to kind of break a little bit, and they're going to talk amongst themselves, and we're going to kind of hear a bit of the dialogue going on behind the scenes as they then desire and give the ruling of kind of restricting uh, the apostles. So let's read 13 through 22. Now when they saw the boldness, there's our keyword. now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I think at this point they didn't realize who these guys were. I don't think they knew that they were Jesus' followers. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that, here's the point, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. They don't even want to say Jesus. But they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then notice Peter's response. Uh, it's good again. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. 21, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for they were praising God for what had happened, the miracle. 
For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And so we get a glimpse into this backroom conversation, if you will, and uh, notice a couple things. Did you notice what stood out to the Sanhedrin? Did you notice what hit them? It was the boldness. It was the boldness of Peter. When they uh, asked him this question, they were like a bully picking on a kid at school. They were intimidating him to back down. And he didn't back down at all. He was bold. Not only was he bold, but he reasoned through the scriptures. And they were like, this guy didn't go to school. He's just a fisherman. How could he, how could he say these things? So they were amazed by that. They couldn't deny the miracle. The guy who had been healed was standing right there. What are you going to say? Oh, you weren't really healed. Yes, I was. <laughs> I mean, you can't deny the miracle. And so they basically said, we're going we're gonna to intimidate you into silence. Like a Chicago mob would who witnessed a murder. They're going to intimidate. They're going to say, if you speak about this, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and this and that. And they tried to intimidate the early church into permanent silence. Again, John and Peter, um, they wouldn't back down. They just wouldn't back down. They said, they basically said, uh, we're going to do what God says, not you. <laughs> that's basically what they say. God told us to tell people, so we're going to tell people, and that's going to be the end of that. And they would not back down from what they knew was true. There's a story that I ran across um, that was a true story of a nurse on her first day at work. So those of you who are nurses in the audience, maybe you can relate to this. Um, it was her first day. She had just gotten out of school, and she was working uh, with a surgeon. It was towards the end of the day. It had been a long, exhausting day. And they were in the middle of surgery. In fact, they were wrapping up the surgery. And it was about time to kind of wrap the patient up, if you will. And so uh, uh, the, notice, the nurse noticed something. She kind of looked at the doctor, and she said, um, Doctor, you've only removed 11 sponges uh, from the body of the patient, and the surgeon said, uh, no, 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 I've, I've, I've removed all 12 of them. And, and the nurse wouldn't let go. She said, no, I counted them. I wanted to make sure, and I, and I knew that there were 12, but you've only removed 11, so where's the other one? And, and at that point, the doctor was a bit miffed and said, you know what, I, I'll take full responsibility for what happens here. It's time to close this person up. And so he goes to do that, and she at this point won't back down. She says, you can't do that. Think about the patient. Think about the implications. We had 12. You only have 11. And at that point, the surgeon kind of grinned a, a wily grin, and, and he lifted up his foot, and he directed the nurse's attention to his foot. And underneath his foot was the 12th sponge. And at that point, he said, I think you'll do. Um, you know, that's exactly what Peter and John were like. They knew what was true, and they would not back down. They would not back down from the highest authority. And so principle number three, and this is the big one for me at least, boldness cares more about God's opinion than man's opinion. When we are bold, we care more about what God thinks in that moment than what we do about what other people think. I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, the opportunities that I miss when I'm talking with someone, when I am scared to share the gospel, when I'm scared to bring up spiritual things, in that moment, what I'm actually doing is I care more about what that person is going to think about me than I care about what God thinks about me. And uh, that's pretty chicken. 
Uh, but that's exactly what happens. In that moment, I care more about how that person's going to respond. What are they going to think of me? Uh, how's it going to affect our relationship? Are they going to think I'm a weirdo? Um, are they going to shut me down? Are they going to ask a question that I don't know how to answer? Are they going to call me a religious freak? What's going to happen? And in that moment, we care more about what God, about what they think than about what God thinks. And so what about you? What about you? In that moment, are you like me so often that I care more about what that person thinks about me than I care about being obedient to God and what he thinks of me? In closing, we see what I would call the response of the church. The response of the church, verses 23 through 21. And this is really good. Essentially what we see in this last section is that uh, Peter and uh, And John go back and they tell the church what happened. And what they do is they pray. They pray and they pray for boldness. Uh, The content of the prayer is threefold. It's pretty simple. We're going to read it. But basically they pray and they say, God, you're sovereign. You're sovereign over all things. And part of your sovereign plan, God, is that we would encounter opposition. People are going to reject Jesus. They're going to reject us. Therefore, that's part of your plan. And then the third section is they basically say, God, give us boldness. We want boldness to face this opposition. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, this is speaking of the church, they lifted their voice together to God And said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed, referring to Jesus. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hands and your plan have predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue, here's the point I want to make, to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus And it concludes, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And so in closing this morning, what we see is the response of the church. They prayed for boldness. They said, if we're going to face opposition, if this is going to be hard, then we're not going to back down. God, give us boldness. And they prayed for it, and they received it. And so number four, this is our last kind of principle for the morning. Boldness comes supernaturally in response to prayer. Boldness comes supernaturally in response to prayer. You know, this kind of hit me hard this week because I don't consider myself an overly bold person. It's, it's a struggle for me. I have to really muster up the boldness and ask God to give me boldness. And the truth of the matter is, I wonder if we're not really bold because we're not asking for God to make us bold. I mean, it's so simple, but I have to think about it. And I'm probably not praying very often, God, make me bold. God, give me opportunity. God, give me someone to talk to. Help me to be bold. And so I don't think we're very bold. I'm not very bold because I don't pray like that. I simply don't ask him to like I should. But the early church asked for boldness and they received it. And so here's your homework for the day. 
for the week, excuse me, uh, and my homework for the week as well that I'll try to pursue, is every morning or every evening or whenever it is that you pray, maybe it's while you're driving home, pray this simple prayer. Number one, pray for God to give you boldness. And number two, pray for opportunity. Pray for boldness and opportunity. And then maybe next week, you can jot me down some stories and send me some emails or some Facebooks and we'll see exactly what God may do with that. And so in conclusion, um, I wonder if we will be like the crew aboard the USS Enterprise. They boldly go where no man has gone before. That's what the early church did. They boldly went where no man had gone before, preaching that this man, Jesus, was risen from the dead and that he was the Son of God and that there was salvation in his name by faith alone. And they boldly went where no man had gone before. So Grace, are we going to do that? Are we going to boldly go where no man has gone before? We will if we remember four things. If we remember that the gospel is effective in spite of opposition. If we are straightforward in our answers. If we care more about what God thinks than what people think. And if we seek boldness in prayer. Let's pray together.